musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And did you know that? And if you still remember that old Moody Blues song like I do, well, it probably brings back some good memories for you, too. And, uh, of course, you know that Timothy Leary is dead, but do you also know that it was exactly 100 years ago today that the good doctor was born? I just finished hosting a live session of the Psychedelic Salon that included some old friends and acquaintances of Dr. Leary's, and in just a moment I'm going to play a recording of that conversation for you. First, however, I want to let our younger members of the salon know that, well, even if you only have a vague idea of who Timothy Leary was, nonetheless, you are directly connected to him as well. In fact, Dr. Timothy Leary is one of your psychedelic ancestors. Now, here's how I figure that. Obviously, you and I are together in cyberdelic space right now. And the fact is that had it not been for Timothy Leary, I never would have even found the psychedelic community. In 1984, I was a 42-year-old Vietnam vet and a Texas lawyer who had never even smoked marijuana. Then, I was offered my first 120 milligram tablet of pure MDMA, which was called ecstasy at the time, and uh, at the time it was also still legal. Now, if you go to psychedelicsalon.com, on the home page you'll find a video interview that I gave about that period in my life. And in it, I tell about how I accidentally became a drug dealer. What I didn't mention in that interview is that the man I wound up working for, selling ecstasy, was given his first 120 milligrams of MDMA from none other than Timothy Leary. So, uh, you see, had it not been for Dr. Leary taking my friend on his first ecstasy experience, well, you and I wouldn't be together here in cyberdelic space right now. So, Timothy Leary is also one of your direct psychedelic ancestors. Now, uh, sit back and, well, as we said in the Navy, smoke them if you got them, <laughs> and enjoy a few tales about the one and only Timothy Leary. Today, of course, uh, we're, we're gathered here to celebrate the 100th anniversary of uh, Dr. Timothy Leary's birth. And uh, what I, I hope to do is to... Uh, get a few stories about Dr. Leary, particularly from people who uh, had some connection with him, uh, so that, that we can kind of keep the, the memory of him alive. I've been, you know, kind of surprised here in the salon that uh, I would say hardly anybody under 25 has any clue who Timothy Leary was. Uh, he's just really kind of disappeared into history other than people thinking, well, you know, he was a crazy acid head or something like that. But there was so much more significantly much more to timothy leary uh, even before his first acid trip you know he was a pretty substantial uh, uh psychologist and so uh i thought it'd be worthwhile to spend the day uh talking some about uh leary and try to make him personify him a little bit and not just the you know the stuff that we read in the press and all like that so uh 
I, I thought, you know, I've, I've invited a few people that will uh, show up here in, in a little bit, I hope. And uh, But I, I wanted to start with you, Real, since uh, <laughs> you're coming to us from Morocco, of all places. Got stuck, uh, stranded on your, your travels to uh, London and uh, hope you'll get over there to meet your grandson eventually. But uh, now that you're locked down in Morocco, uh, we've got you pinned down. So maybe you can tell us, share some memories of the good Dr. Larry. Excuse me. Well, I think one of the things that uh, is interesting about Tim that people don't usually know is that uh, he had a very philosophical side to him. And uh, unfortunately, I don't have the photograph uh, with me that I could show that I did of him one night about 2 a.m. because I would stay with him quite often in Beverly Hills at his place there and in sitting at a Keith Harrington table, uh, a really philosophical mind. We would have very deep, long, long conversations into the night. Um, another thing is that uh, he was honored very shortly before his death by the America, I believe it was the American Psychological Association in LA for his uh, life's work. And he established some of the basic um, techniques that were used and I don't, may still be used, for all I know, in psychology. I mean, before he left Harvard, he, he was quite influential. Um, on the other side, he always had, uh, in Beverly Hills, there was always a stream of people coming through. So it was one of the great places to meet and have salons, which occurred quite regularly, some planned, some spontaneously. Um, there was also, I don't know if you're familiar, we held a wake for Tim, and he decided he wanted to have his wake before he died. And so why shouldn't he be there to enjoy it? <laughs> And uh, one of his perhaps lesser-known books that he wrote toward the end of his life was called Designer Dying, uh, which you might find of interest. Uh, I was also thinking an interesting story is sort of the way Tim rolled, which uh, a friend of mine uh, who also at the time I was working on the Biosphere 2 project, and a friend of mine, an associate from the project, and I were in L.A., and uh, staying at his place. And so we were visiting one afternoon, and he said, would you like, you know, some brownies? And we're like, yeah, cool. And uh, so he gave us each a brownie, and then Barbara, his wife, uh, at the time came home and said, you know, he said, well, I gave him a couple brownies. And she was like, Tim, you're supposed to give, you know, like no more than an eighth of a brownie to somebody. <laughs> And so we were going to a performance art piece in downtown L.A. and uh, took off from the house because we knew we had to, uh, you know, get there in time. And uh, to make a long story short, which I could stretch out, but I think we've got a lot of other good people to hear from here. I just recall uh, staying to Malone, my friend, as I keep talking to me. Because right now we're flying over the L.A. freeway. And I want to make sure we have a soft landing when we get to the performance art piece. 
So this kind of not unlike Tim at various times, but always uh, just really a gentleman, a very hospitable person uh, toward the end of his life. Of course, he knew what was coming. Uh, he did quite a lot of work to organize his archive. And something I wanted to point out, there is a film that's coming up um, and I, it's going to be tomorrow, let's see, tomorrow morning, the 23rd at 5 a.m. European time. You can register for it and then need to start watching it and have 24 hours. <clears throat> and Joanna Harcourt-Smith, who was his partner for many years, especially when he was on the run, uh, it's a film that was recently done, and she died just a few days ago. And they're bringing out an advanced showing of the film, which will later be I think, on Showtime. But let me see if I if I go away from the screen. I don't know if I'll lose you, Lorenzo, uh, to grab that, or I can come no, back. You, you, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. I'm quite sure. Uh, and okay. and uh, about Joanna, this is the first I've heard of this because, you know, she and I have been in contact. I hadn't heard that. Uh, what happened? Uh, she had breast cancer and it metastasized and she was in stage four, you know, and what I think it was uh, last week she passed and uh, held on till she had her grandchild there and the whole family, and then uh, went peacefully, it sounds like, in a beautiful uh, ceremony afterwards where they surrounded her, laying in her bed with candles and carnations and other flowers, Tibetan rites over her. And so it's quite timely, this Errol Morris film, the first one he's done, documentary with his son, will be released, available, as I say, tomorrow. Let me uh, switch screens here for a second and see if I can grab it. Yeah, if you find that, I'll uh, I can I can include it in the program notes because I'm going to try to get this podcast out yet today. Uh, okay. So so that would be very helpful. Uh, Joanna, I I interviewed her for uh, a podcast here in the salon and helped her get her own podcast going. So uh, uh, that's that's a shame that she uh, is not with us any longer. Uh, she was an interesting character that, you know, as a 21-year-old <laughs> girl, really got swept up into uh, some high-stakes uh, global uh, <laughs> politics, I think, you know. That, uh, uh, the, name, the name of the film is My Psychedelic Love Story. Maybe you want to type it into the chat, My Psychedelic Love Story. And it's premiering this week. Um, well, it says tonight, it'll be tonight your time, actually, but the effective time will be 5 a.m. European, so that's GMT plus one on the 23rd, so that'll still be the 22nd, which is tonight, and you can live stream it. It'll be available for 24 hours. It's $15.00. And I'm trying to see uh, later. Let's see if I can get you a link for it. Okay. We'll that and you can put that in the chat. That, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I wonder if, if uh, there were, you know, conversations going on, uh, you know, a few years ago, you know, four or five years ago, 
uh, people talking about the centennial of Timothy Leary's birth. And, uh, you know, I think we could have speculated that, uh, well, the centennial year of Leary's birth might be really crazy and wild. But <laughs> I, I think we will all remember the centennial year of Timothy Leary's birth. You know, 2020 has been uh, rather unique. Very unique. And it's interesting, you know, the backlash that developed uh, and brought, of course, the effective hippie era to an end in 68 with the burial of Mr. Hippie. But uh, certainly the revolution continued. And at the same time now, we're seeing a renaissance in psychedelic research and practice. Uh, so it's a very interesting time with what's going on, as you say, in, in his 100th anniversary and the election coming up and everything, but uh, coinciding with that is an opening in consciousness that we haven't seen for quite a long time. I just received a, a notice today from a university student that's calling for speakers for one of their psychedelic conferences on university campuses. And those are taking place everywhere. There's psychedelic societies on, on many, many university campuses. And that is such a switch from, uh, from the 60s and 70s, you know, that uh, I, I, I can remember in the uh, 70s, something or other, when Richard Nixon declared that Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America. And uh, yeah. I think it's safe to say that he's uh, had to give that title up for someone else <laughs> right now. <laughs> and I think we can all see who is the most dangerous man in America. But, you know, it's been a, a long and, and uh, bumpy road to get from uh, where Timothy Leary was leading the, uh, the charge for psychedelics. And I always want to point out that, you know, I think that Dr. Leary got a really bad rap for uh, a lot of people say he ruined the sixties, but he wasn't the one that was holding uh, acid tests with a thousand people getting uh, dosed without even knowing it. He was actually doing some serious uh, tripping and researching. I think he was much more serious scientist than he gets credit for. Yeah, I, w I would agree with you. Uh, by the way, I just did post in the chat, the link uh, for the film, which will be available for 24 hours. I should say this is Joanna's story, so don't take it as the story of Tim's entire life. Uh, but ha not having seen the film yet, I can't say how much they're going beyond her particular part of the story. But um, I think one of the most significant uh, works that he did <clears throat> was, and of course he was the co-author, with um, Albert Metzger of the psychedelic experience. And in a lot of the talks that I've been giving, I've tried to point out to people who, as you say, young people haven't even heard of him in many cases. But that book, I think, was a real valuable, very valuable resource to us at that time in the beginning years when LSD and the other psychedelics became more common and available, um, even though they were still, of course, illegal. And it's still a great reference uh, book for preparation for uh, taking psychedelics. So that's something I think that has kind of been lost along the way that is well worth going back to. Is that the book that is colloquially referred to as the Tibetan Book of the Dead? That, 
It was yeah. ba- the psychedelic experience was based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Right. And it talks, of course, about ego death, which at a you know, sufficient dose you undergo with LSD and other psychedelics. And frankly, I don't think you actually can appreciate the efficacy and the, uh, what can be gained from a true psychedelic trip uh, without getting to a dosage level in which ego death occurs. But it really is, especially, you know, just even getting into the introduction, which you can probably do just reading, you know, on Amazon, they let you read a few pages, um, gives you a whole new perspective. And, of course, that was the development of set and setting and dosage as uh, some of the main guideposts for preparing for a psychedelic journey. And that was basically the, the first uh, psychedelic trip guide that came out, I think, uh, that I'm aware of, other than maybe a few little uh, mimeograph things here and there. No, I, I would agree with you. Yeah, as a trip guide, I made several works, you know, like Doors of Perception by Huxley were great, you know, at preparation. But I think the psychedelic experience is probably still a unique book in the field. Uh, let's let's bring Mike, Michael Shields in here too, because Michael has literally read everything that uh, Dr. Leary has written, and unlike me, he actually remembers almost all of it too. Michael, you, I, we were actually—I think it was you, Michael—that maybe talked about a few weeks ago here in the salon that uh, this it feels like we're in a bardo right now. Is, was that you? That <laughs> I don't think so, Lorenzo. But that's a really good way to look at what's happening. We're definitely transitioning some kind of bardo uh for sure the whole planet is that, that's an amazing observation by somebody yeah this what, what about some of timothy's books that that uh maybe haven't been uh as well, widely read as should be i think what rio just said about psychedelic experience is true it's a fantastic book it's also like a historical document but timothy would have said Based on it, he would have changed the title of to the Tibetan Book of the Dying rather than Dead because you're still alive when you're dying, and that's real important to Timothy's uh, writings and theory uh, that we could get into later. But um, but my my favorite book, I think Timothy really another the next book that came out was. Um, uh, psychedelic prayers based on the Tao Te Ching. And I, I highly recommend that too. That's even more fantastic. Um, it's, it's a little better. It's a little, it's different in the sense it's totally based on uh, the Tao, the Taoist, Taoist religion is, doesn't have any content other than nature, which is highly recommended for psychedelic experiences. Whereas the Tibetan Book of the Dead that's sort of like if you were brought up a Catholic, uh, you know, you might have trouble with all that uh, scary Tibetan iconogra- iconography that the Tibetans have, just like the Catholic Church has. Um, you know, it, they used to be called bad trips, then it was changed to uh, difficult trips, and now it's called challenging trips. Yeah, I've, I've had all three actually. <laughs> yeah, everybody, 
you probably will eventually because everybody has problems, you know, or, or, or uh, um, difficulties. And, and, and that's what's happened in the last 50 years is, especially in the new, um, you know, this microdosing bloom that's happening. There's, it's all based on having really, really informed, uh, you know, guidance for people who are going to be doing this for the first time or any time. You know, the, James Fadiman has a fantastic book out on, you know, this is all that recent, uh, you know, approval by the New York Times, the government of people doing microdosing for some reason which is very inexplicable, but it's happening. And that, that would be an example of being in a bardo, this really weird bardo where the biggest promoters of microdosing is Forbes magazine, you know, <laughs> and, and the business community. And they, they think it's some kind of magic dust that if you look at the top billionaires or now tr maybe trillionaires, they all... Many, many, almost all of them had uh, psychedelic experiences, and they were dropouts from Harvard. I mean, it's a very bizarre situation we're in. I mean, if I, anybody I wants to know the exact thing, I can give the specific references if you want them. We'll, we'll get, get back to that. I see that uh, Ron Turner has joined us now. And, and Charles, could you uh, introduce Ron and uh, maybe bring him up to speed in what we were talking about here? Uh, it'd be it'd be a real pleasure. Uh, Ron is the founder and publisher of Last Gasp of San Francisco, one of the uh, great long-running uh, independent underground presses in the United States, uh, and for a long time, a distributor of uh, a lot of uh, really key and important ideas and thinkers in um, in psychedelic thinking. And so uh, it's thrilling to have him here today. Ron also is the um, one of the great fathers of underground comics. Um, so, Ron, why don't you unmute and uh, join us here? Yep, we got you muted here, Ron. Let me unmute you here. I, hang I on, think hang Ron, on, Ron, you're, you're muted. You're, you're going to have to push a button on your PC there, Ron, to unmute yourself. Hey, Ronzo, you're muted. You're still muted, Ron. There's a unmute button. Uh, let me see if, if uh, maybe I can do it here. If you put the cursor on your picture and go to those three little dots up in the right-hand corner, you should be able to unmute. Hallelujah. There you are. There we got you. The gods of psychedelia are upon us. Um, I was really enjoying the, the sense that we were, of Michael, when you were talking about the dumbing down of uh, psychedelics, you know, the, uh, the kind of trips people were having. And I was glad you got into microdosing. It was, uh, uh, I, people were talking about, like, well, let's go down and get a drink, you know. <laughs> And you say, what? You want a microdose? Why, why do you want a microdose right now? I'm driving the car. You know, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. It's uh, People are, are, I guess they've seen enough fire eaters. They think they can do it. You know, so, 
Yeah, that, that I understand that Google actually has a full-time uh, employee that is teaching people how to microdose. Now, I don't know if that's an urban legend or not, but it wouldn't surprise me, I guess. Well, no. Well, Lorenzo, the, the Google the Google starters are, are famous for going to Burning Man, so there there is a urban myth that they're psychedelicists. Yeah, on one I, hand, I that would that. be an amazing job, and on the other hand, you know how they how they square that with what's going on with their government problems right now is really something. <laughs> let Let me circle back to you, Ron, for just a minute. I, I want to say I'm I'm really honored to uh, get to meet you, and uh, although I have my archive and library and storage right now, there are uh, two or three copies of Last Gas magazine in there from way long ago. So I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you here in the salon with us. So thanks for being here. Sure. Well, I've got a warehouse full of them if you ever run out. <laughs> I've got a, a peculiar piece of memorabilia here today. This is um, the Timothy Leary Neuro Comics that Ron published in 1979. And uh, Ron, this was um, this was um, uh, what's his name? Um, George, George DiCaprio. And uh, well, go ahead. No, it is. It was uh, George DiCaprio. Is a good was a good good friend of of Tim and uh, one of the edge. And so uh, he and I, George and I, became friends when he was living in New York, and I was out here about 1971 or something like that. You, you might want to mention that's Leonardo's father, right? Do I have to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a, I had a, my 80th birthday a, few, a week or so ago, and they they got on a Zoom call with me with a bunch of other people. It was really fun to see them because once somebody becomes real famous, you don't get to see them much anymore. You know, that was uh, yeah. In the early years with Tim. Uh, I got to know him, but just briefly, and it was like, you know, elbowing your way through the uh, lines to the Beatles or something back then, but get, getting a little close to him, and, and conversations were impossible. So, uh, but eventually that broke down. And I, th- I think my, my uh, thing with, and George and I became really close friends, and we had our boys like three years apart and they kind of grew up together and we've had lots and lots of fun. But he was like, uh, DiCaprio should be on here more than anybody, I think. Um, the, who's not already on here. And he, uh, had this idea to do it. There was a, this big thing about the, I think the comets were happening then and was it Kahootek or something? Tim was writing. Tim was writing about anything back then. It seemed like yeah, Kahootek. Kahootek, yeah. And he that was going to bring it. I don't know. Talk about you know, fairy dust that was going to come through us and drop fairy dust on us and change us all. And it was going to be a psychedelic experience. And good God. Um, <laughs> so um, you know, just That's about super it. important. Comet Kahootek. Uh, Joanna Harcourt Smith was the one who was published the um, the pamphlet called uh, Neuro. It was called Neuro um, Neurologic or Starseed. It was called Starseed. It was a pamphlet, and we we actually drove down to Mexico to see the comic to Hotel. Uh, weren't you happy with it? 
Uh, would you say more about the, the, the neuro comics that he just showed there for really that super important book that, that you published? Neuro comics is actually the best visual representation of Timothy's thinking about psychedelics, you know, in, in a comic book form. Charles, can you look at the, uh, at the page there and see who was the artist in the book? Yeah, that was Pete Von Schally. Yes, okay. Pete's still around, and he just put out a book of monsters, that, the famous movie Monsters. Yeah, but yeah, get, get some ideas. He did capture stuff very well, and he, too, was a really close friend of DiCaprio's, and uh, he got to know Tim, and is just an excellent artist. And he's still at every Comic-Con, so... You guys see that on the page? It's pretty. Oh yeah, yeah. We we got a lot of flack from people saying like, "How come there's so many words, so many pictures in comic books?" <laughs> well, and it, it's an extraordinary document too because it's it's very esoteric philosophy. You know, it's it's Tim going through his philosophy of the zodiac and how each piece of the zodiac ties to an element of both human development and this. Um, star-going life extension, you know, development as well. Um, who was the audience? How was it received? And was that your first real entry into spending more time with Tim, or did that come before or after? Oh, um, it came a bit after uh, I, uh, I spent more time with him, yeah. It was uh, – I originally, he had originally wanted me to, well, first of all, my history with Tim goes back to, uh, I was a, a, a psych student, a psych grad student, and I also worked at Kaiser Hospital doing studies in allergies and emotions. I've always done jobs before I was qualified, That's including publishing, and I'm still doing that, still unqualified, and the... Uh, <laughs> So uh, when I was at Kaiser, I kept running into files on the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, that Tim helped put together. And it was wow. Wow. You know that. Psychedelic text, psychedelic uh, mental uh, appraisement that you had at the time to determine certain things, certain patterns of answering questions and whether you refuted your earlier answers later on in the test. It'll tell you an awful lot about somebody. And there was always like one trick question that was pretty obvious in there. It says, the top of my head hurts. <laughs> <laughs> it was in there a couple of times. I was like, so who's, who are you going to fool with this one? You know, I guess somebody said really does hurt. I don't know. Um, but, you know, I'd see this, and so I had access to the files, the medical files. And... Uh, was always around there. The only problem was that there was a very famous allergist uh, by the name of Feinberg, and he was really into children's allergies, and I had to often go to his office to find certain textbooks to look for something in. I hated hippies. <laughs> I had hair down on my shoulders. <laughs> and uh, he, he never knew that I worked for him. And He'd see me in there. I'm looking for something, and I was always trying to get to his master files to see if he had anything on Tim or not. Could never get, you know, before he'd wonder in and say, 
that hippie again. Get the hippie. Call for security. <laughs> and I worked there, so they did me in closets and things until he got calmed down and went away. And, uh, <laughs> and I go back to try to find things. So, so I was in contact with him when he was in prison, and we began a little correspondence. And he sent me this book he wanted me to publish of his stuff. Well, and then you know, you guys know the rest of the story. He escaped and uh, went off. So the problem was with that book, I found out, was that he had sent it out to about 18 other publishers, except that he had changed like one paragraph in it. So everybody thought they had an original book that nobody else had. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I really loved about Tim was he was a scoundrel. <laughs> so, and I, I love scoundrels, so. You know, I don't remember ever seeing a picture of Timothy Leary when he wasn't smiling. Um, I Well, I could only imagine on his face. Uh, has everybody seen the Chicago 7 movie yet? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, please see it. Absolutely mind-blowing. It's a wonderful fiction. Uh, you know, it's uh, Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman perfectly. And I can't believe there's not a cameo of Tim in there. But anyway, at some point, Jerry Rubin uh, is in Hollywood, and he, not in the movie, but in real life, and walks across the street, he's jaywalking, and gets hit by a bus or a car or something, dies. And there's a funeral, and I can't make it, but I was going to go down and stay with Tim if I did make it, or, or DiCaprio. And uh, so I, I know that it's about the time of the funeral, and Tim's on the phone with me, and I'm saying, what's up, Tim? And he says, Ron, Ron, he says, Robert Cleaver's walking down my driveway. What do I do? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, the time that he ghosts Eldridge Cleaver, and he's still afraid of the black panthers. But he's coming. He's almost to the door. He says, don't answer the door. <laughs> so, and I, what you mentioned, Lorenzo, about he didn't—he didn't like physical violence, and he saw he, he was going to get an ass weapon or something. He thought, and uh, so he would—he would not have been smiling at that time. <laughs> yeah, his smiling was quite intentional. Mm -hmm. He decided at some point that he was going to smile all the time, and that was uh, the persona he wanted to put out. I think he even put that in his autobiography, that, that he didn't want the press ever to take a picture of him when he wasn't smiling. He didn't want them to think he was in distress of any way. Exactly. Yeah. Smart move. <laughs> Ron, I, I, I only have one uh, story about George DiCaprio. I, I, one time I was, uh, it was in a cop bar in L.A. We were doing a tribute for Terrence McKenna, and I wound up sitting with uh, George, and, and uh, he told me about when he was a High Times distributor in Hollywood back a long time ago, back when you must have known him uh, originally, and he said that one day he was really hurting for cash and had to do something, so he, he sent his then wife uh, with a case of High Times to deliver to a, a store somewhere in, in the L.A. area, and well, she came back, and he was... Yeah. 
he, he was really desperate for the money and, and he asked her for the cash and she said, oh, I did better than that. And she had a whole bag of mushrooms that she got instead. <laughs> it must have been a kind of fun days back then, huh? It, yeah, and, and um, th that those fun days back then have been going on for a while. So, uh, yeah, George came out from New York. He'd printed a comic book and... Uh, he hates to hear this story, he and, but he won't tell it himself. So, what can a guy do? You know, and uh, <laughs> so he used to print this comic book called Greaser Comics. He was he was living with Lou Reed at the time, and Lou's girlfriend uh, uh, Anderson. She was a, a singer and a performer, and then she did a comic book with George called Baloney Moccasins. And I mean, talk about kind of psychedelia and, you know, kind of spilling over into your artistic world. And then uh, he distributed that. And then I started distributing greaser comics for him out in San Francisco. And we got on the phone, became, became fast friends on the phone back when we had to pay for it. Although we finally got blue boxes, so we didn't have to pay for them. Anymore. Anybody remember what blue boxes were? <laughs> I was I had a girlfriend when I was in college, and without the blue box, we wouldn't talk. <laughs> right. Um, people wouldn't understand today, but it was expensive to communicate back then. And and you uh, had to had to shout if it was long distance. Sometimes <laughs> if you had a bad line. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. And uh, but these blue boxes could imitate the sounds of that the phones used to communicate with each other about where it was going and where the call was being directed. And you could put these little tones in there, do, 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 and you'd be hooked up to you, who you're calling on a local call, no, no charge. And they wouldn't <laughs> know about it. Um, Actually, the guy that, that created that uh, is still around, too. I bumped into him in Arizona about 10 years ago. Uh, so he's, he's still out doing his thing uh, uh, after he got out of prison. Yeah, well... Somebody had to take the fall. <laughs> so um, George did this comic, but he did it in the, he stored the comics in the elevator shaft. And uh, he, the people that did the movie, or the play Grease and then the movie, stole George's letterings off of the Greaser comics. Really? Wow. Grease, yeah. But, uh, and... He was hanging out with Andy Warhol back then, too. He was always very available to do trips and, he, and things or whatever. But when you got loose on money, you had to make sales. And, you know, it was, nobody was backing us for anything. We, you know, we were just kind of living in our warehouses and doing things. And anyway, at some point, one of the presses that George was using in City Hall to print the comics on got... Um, what the blankets on the presses, there were transfer rollers and things. And if you didn't clean them down, there'd be a ghost image of what you'd previously printed on there. And I guess a couple of guys were sitting there with Mayor uh, uh, Lindsay. That's how far back it goes. And they're opening up and saying, like, hey, George, to somebody, not George DiCaprio, but hey, Fred. And they'd be looking at their, their papers and says, does this look like a guy's getting a blowjob to you? <laughs> <laughs> so they uh, called George in to ask him about these things. And, uh, 
He says, gee, I don't know. You know, it's like that whole thing about, you know, get, get a hundred, get a thousand monkeys and typewriters and put them to work for a million years and one of them will create a novel, you know, just accidental dots on the paper and blah, 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 blah. And I'll, I'll see you later. I got it. And he went down and cleaned the rollers and then realized that you have to get everything out of the press, you know, out of the, the elevator shaft. And the next thing I knew, I was agreeing to take his comic books and they arrived by truck a few weeks later. And then he and Ermelin arrived out here. And uh, he always wanted to be a script writer and he, they moved to Hollywood to do that. And then they had Leonardo. But he made good friends with Tim down there, and uh, he was uh, very much into the intellectual study of psychedelics as well as, you know, understanding them. And I think I think I got really close to Tim through Anita Hoffman, and uh, and. George had this connection with Anita and Abby really closely too. So there's this funny connection that way. And that all the latchkey latch kids in their neighbor, Ermelin and George's, or by then it was Peggy DiCaprio. Ermelin and George had split and uh, very uh, uh, on both sides acceptable. And uh, Leonardo was around and in school, and uh, Peggy had an older son, Adam. And then the, all these latchkey kids would come over to the DiCaprio's house after school. <coughs> Excuse me. And they would uh, hang out. And so George would always like be having to do this distribution route of comics and books and magazines down there in L.A. And he would take uh, all the kids. And one day, uh, one of his neighbors came over, and she worked in the movie industry, knocked on his door and says, look, I, I know you like my son David very much. He's a great kid. And he thinks a lot of all you. He says, I, I've got to go back east for something. And they said, well, for what? And uh, she says, well, uh, my ex-husband has, uh, has come out and uh, uh, I've got to go back and take care of some business with some things that you know he's been uncovered and, and the conversation went on and finally it turned out that that was Anita Hoffman and that kid wasn't David his name was America you know remember the book mm -hmm. that Abby and Anita wrote to each other Letters to America it's called and uh, so they were all kids together so Later on, uh, I think Michael Horowitz was putting Anita up and up in uh, Petaluma. And I remember every now and then George would like fly up and we'd drive up to Petaluma and George would lay some money on Anita to help her out and do things. So if there's ever a saint in this whole business and thing, it's DiCap George DiCaprio. I'll let you know that he takes care of so many people and he never says anything about it does anything but then because of that Anita and I got to be a little bit closer and then when Tim came uh, Dennis Barry uh, was living somewhere up around there I think at the time and uh, I remember getting invited to a coming out party when Tim's ex uh, 
life re reappeared after being out in the in the dark darkness for a long time. And uh, and I don't know. It's the uh, I know I'm rambling, but all these stories keep flooding in when I Ron, Ron, you 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 brought up the uh, the trial of the Chicago Seven. And I know Timothy was a witness in that trial, but he he wasn't uh, didn't appear in the movie. There were there were a few things in the movie left out, like the fact that there were thousands of people outside the the courthouse every day, you know, and things like that. But uh, what I, can you tell us a little bit about Timothy's uh, involvement in that trial? I think he was a character witness or something, wasn't he? Well, I. Um, I wasn't back in Chicago at the time. Uh, I was out here. And uh, I've talked to so many people about the I don't know what Timmy was doing with that thing so much. as It, uh, it was just a, such a long-running circus, you know. It was like every day was something else. I know they didn't have, I know that uh, Hayden didn't read the, those names off at the end of the trial. And I know that Abby... They should have had uh, Sasha Cohen do the headstand on the defense table in front of right. That would have been perfect, but they left that out. You know. So. Yeah, they 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 uh, played fast and loose with a few things. Uh, all all in all, though, I think it's a a good film that people should see to get an idea of what went on back then. Even though yes. it's a, uh, it has some holes in it, and and maybe it'll lead people to uh, read a little bit more about it because it was such a travesty. It's just hard to believe that it took place. But in today's environment, uh, it's not that surprising, you know. <laughs> Lorenzo. Yeah. What's really important about that trial is the unfairness of it, the way the judge acted, just completely arbitrarily. Oh, he was another. That applies to what happened to Timothy's trials, and I think this new movie that um, was mentioned earlier that I know Joanna was supposedly involved with, I, I have a, I, what I read of it already is it's not going to be take notice of that, you know, when it accuses Tim of uh, being a informer. They, they're they're going to leave out all these contexts. That and um, but anyway, uh, do you know anything about Leonardo DiCaprio? Last summer, he he was working on a Timothy Leary script that they sold. They decided not to do it, and Leonardo was supposed to play Leary. Have you heard anything about that? That, that, that was a that was a plan for a long, long time for uh, Tim for Leo to play Tim. He kind of had to grow into the character. He was like too young and too uh, not filled out enough at the time. And he, uh, and you're right, I think that they, it's finally, Hollywood, I, I, I would have gone, I would have shot 55, you know, movie executives if I was ever trying to do, put something through Hollywood. They're just nuts down there. And I mean, they get all the way to the final thing and there's finally like little, you know, they call it green lighting. We've been green lighted. Uh, you know, it's like I've I've lost my virginity. <laughs> I'm really so excited about it, and but after you, you know, I kind of sat in the sidelines and watched so many movies and scripts to my friends in the movies that it, uh, you know, go, goes on. But 
but you bring up another thing about Tim and movies. <laughs> Tim was, I, he was connected to so many movie stars and actresses, people. He really loved them. And probably because he was, he had a great act too. He was a great actor as well. And uh, he, he really was part of it. Uh, Michael Horowitz, again, is kind of a biographer. My daughter was Winona Ryder. So there's even another connection. And then uh, one of his wives, uh, oh, I can't think of her, her name right now, tall blonde woman. Uh, kill, who's the star of Kill Bill? Uma Thurman. I can't hear what? Uma Thurman. Uma Thurman. That was Tim was married to her mother for a while. Tim had like seven and a half wives. I don't know. And and when you were working on um, one of Tim's last projects, uh, surfing the conscious nets, um, you were spending time down there, um, you know, and, and and interacting with a lot of them, and and like Winona was ministering to him, right? Uh, <laughs> Well, Winona, he was Winona's godfather, and so she was around, and I'd known her from when she was a little girl, and uh, so I think I met her when she was about six or seven outside the Fitzhugh Ludlow Memorial Library, that, uh, and which was the drug library. And she grew up to be a pretty good actress and kids and terribly devoted to Tim. And she, um, she'd be around, but she was mostly around when Tim was dying sometime after we'd gotten that, that surfing the conscious nets out. That was Tim's most happy book he ever had. He told me he was, he always wanted his own comic book, and that was his comic book. Do you have a copy of that there to show? I don't have a copy of that. i got to shake you down for one. And I know there's signed copies available on GASP's uh, website, too, if anybody oh, is I'm looking for memorabilia. One of those, yeah. Try yeah. But, you know, I just want to bring something up that uh, is something that we always in this community tiptoe around. Uh, me in particular, because uh, there's a lot of controversy about whether uh, Timothy ever gave state's evidence or, or talked when he was in custody and all. And, and I've read a lot about that. I'm convinced that uh, he, he's clean, but uh, and Joanna convinced me that too. But do you guys have any comment on that? I, I don't want to be hogged the screen like I've been hogging it here, but I do have something. No, please do. Please do. Um, well, yeah, there was always this whole thing. Everybody said, like, Tim was good, good, good. And then, however, he was a think. He lied. He sort of ratted things out. And I remember, <coughs> excuse me, it's not COVID-19. It's uh, <laughs> COPD. It's nothing serious. And so um, I ran into some of the brothers. Any, anybody here know the Brotherhood? I, I knew Nick Sand. He's the only one I knew in the Brotherhood. And he wasn't technically in the Brotherhood. He was just their alchemist. Ah, okay. That's good. Anybody else? Okay. Um, well, I got together at Tim's Wake. 
with some of them. And it was held at Tim's house. And it was, it was a wonderful day. Uh, if any of you knew Tim's house in, in Hollywood, it was set on the edge of a cliff. And if you're out by the edge of the cliff and turned around, you could look up over the house and see the back of Sharon Tate's house. That's since been bulldozed down. But uh, it was pretty interesting. Um, place to be. It was just a real salon of everybody coming over every day and doing things there. And then to have the, the wait there was, uh, Tim married, uh, George DiCaprio and Peggy Farrar on his back there. It's a great tape. And every time he'd open up a Bible and start reading it, and then he'd toss it over his shoulder, toss it into the cliff. <laughs> I wouldn't expect any less. <laughs> no, it was great. And I couldn't make it to the wedding, so he, everybody, every about 10 minutes, we were really getting along at that time. Uh, he said, where's Ron Turner? God damn, where's Ron? And so uh, at the wake, Peggy brought me the, the videotape, and I had to sit and watch it uh, because I hadn't done the wedding, so I did. And, and while I'm sitting watching it, I'm talking to some of these guys who turned out to be in the Brotherhood. So we get, I guess, because they could see that I was close to Tim, that they opened up to me. And so, uh, we talked a lot and I said, well, tell me this story about this. I said, cause he was, you know, supposedly he ratted you guys out, you know, and what was the real story? And he's, and they said very simply that, well, yes, he did. We gave him exactly what to say, and he said it, and he got out. And they said, did you notice that none of us ever went to jail? <laughs> you know, I said, that's right. That's perfect. He did wrap them out. And, uh, he told them exactly what they wanted to hear and believe, and it did nothing to anything. So well, Ron, I've I've heard that I've heard that story I've heard that story several times, but you're the first one I've heard it from that's a first hand recording of it. So I really appreciate you passing that along because uh, you know there's been a lot of people talked about that, but you actually talked to some of the brotherhood that told you that, right? Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. They're still, still secretive as hell. They don't you know they don't leave you a business card. <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> So, well, that's that is uh, really important to have that uh, from you and and you know and and hearing from them because I'd always heard that he'd been uh, you know he he passed along information that that he knew wasn't going to hurt anybody, but I I hadn't heard before that the Brotherhood actually put him up to uh, what to say. So that that uh, makes me feel even better about uh, Timothy. DiCaprio and I later on at the wake, DiCaprio and I remembered that Tim was. Uh, was always afraid of being raided and uh, tripped up by the police. And so he always had a way to quickly stash his drugs if he was, you know. And we, we both kind of remembered that, and we ran around and looked under every light table lamp that was <laughs> even better <laughs> for, for the powder, for the pills that he would have shoved underneath there. But somebody would beat us to it already. So... <laughs> 
Well, those were the good old days that, that were also kind of tense old days from time to time, too, you know? Yes. You know, I, I had hoped to get uh, uh, Bruce Damer and, and uh, uh, Dennis Berry in here today, because Dennis is the one that, that uh, took over the uh, Leary archive from Joanna uh, Leary, and, uh, you know, they were roommates at one time, and then uh, got Bruce involved, and they finally got it to the uh, New York City Public Library. But for, for years, uh, Dennis, had she had uh, paid for all the storage herself. It took two storage units to to hold the stuff. And uh, I, I was there and went through, uh, through it one day. And the, the amount of stuff in that archive is astounding. I don't know how much the New York City Library kept. But among other things that I found when I was just kind of at random poking through it, uh, his mother had kept a, a book, a baby book, and actually recorded the date, the first day he actually splashed in the bathtub. So that's how complete that archive is. And I found laundry receipts from Vacaville Prison where his, he had his laundry done. I mean, that, his archive had everything in it. And uh, she finally was able to negotiate uh, with the New York City Library to sell it to them so that Timothy's uh, heirs could get something. And, and when they came up to get it and, and took it out of storage, uh, she called Bruce in a panic and said they have dumped his entire book collection and uh, clipping collection from newspapers into the, the dumpster. And so Bruce dropped everything, got in his van, drove up there, jumped in the dumpster, and was able to save most of it before the garbage truck got there. So Bruce now has uh, his library, including autographed copy of Doom from Frank Herbert, dedicated to Timothy Leary, and stuff like that that the library threw out, including all his big collections of uh, Scrapbook. You know, he had a clipping service that uh, clipped everything he was mentioned worldwide. And Bruce has that whole collection now, and they're trying, uh, the Internet Archive is going to have to build a special scanner to scan it because of the size of it. But uh, eventually all that will be online. Uh, the books, of course, uh, you know, are, are books, and the library didn't keep them because they had all those books. But <laughs> some of those are really valuable, I think. That, that's one of the problems with uh, getting, you know, selling your archive to some places that uh, you, you think that, oh, now it's safe, but it's not. You know, they need space. Like, you know, get, it's, it's horrible what happens to some of this stuff. Yeah, I know the University of Purdue now has uh, all of Stan Groff's stuff and, and uh, most of Gary Fisher's stuff, although Gary left me a, a number of his original papers that I still have. And I have uh, tons of tapes and a lot of original stuff like that. And, uh, you know, mine's all in a storage container right now because I don't have room for it. And uh, I've, I've thought about that. You know, the people put these things in archives and, you know, the New York City uh, Library Archive, I don't know how you can get in to see all this stuff. So, uh, you know, I've got a lot of uh, books. I've, I've got an autographed copy of uh, Secret Chiefs that Myron, uh, Stan Groff, Albert Hoffman, and the Shoguns all autographed. You know? <laughs> and I've got a copy of the, uh, the uh, analog drug law that uh, Sasha sent me. And so, you know what I'm going to do with all that stuff? I'm going to give it away to all of the people in the salon. I've been writing about it in these journals I'm doing, the Chronicles, and uh, I'm going to eventually get it to probably somebody like Charles who can distribute, you know, to all everybody. So everybody can have a little piece of it, and it isn't in one location and uh, 
get it out there. I, I've also got some things from the military that I think should be uh, made in the public domain. The military did a, a publication of atrocities in Vietnam, complete with pictures, and My Lai was not the worst of them. And it's a, a Pentagon publication that uh, was classified top secret that somehow wound up in my archive. So those are things that I want to get out into the archive. And I, I think that, you know, like Gary Fisher's original papers, I want to put them in the hands of some young people who are doing research right now that might, you know, take good care of them and feel that they're important pieces of paper. So uh, that's that's one thing I think that we should all be looking at. Uh, how, how do we get things, you know, like... Like, uh, Ron, I'm sure you've got a collection that just will blow people's minds. And, uh, you know, <laughs> how how do you preserve all of those things? You know, I don't have anything that's a, a collection per se. I just have bits and pieces of stuff. But how, how do how do we uh, save this information that's not digital to get it out to uh, the people that are going to need it in the years to come? We're, we're, uh, we're part of the uh, International Silverfish Association. And how, do you, and how do you protect it? You try to keep it from getting wet, basically. <laughs> Either from the bottom or the top. And then you try to keep it away from fire. <laughs> what are you going to do? You've got to build a concrete thing somewhere with humidifiers in it and put it in a dish. So the thing, the thing to do is to digitize as much as you can just so it's out there. Go ahead, Charles. So speaking of saving things, there, there's a great Tim story that uh, John, it belongs to John Longy, but maybe you can tell it, Ron, involving when Tim came to town and he left you a message regarding the, the cryonic dis- disposition. You, you know what I'm – I don't, I, don't, I don't know the story all that well, but do you, do you have this one? No, I, I need to read it. From Longy, really, before I could tell you. Okay, well, re- real, real briefly then. So while Ron was working on surfing the conscious nets, or, or right afterwards, I think they're in the promotional halo. Tim was very concerned about um, making sure that he would be have his head oh. frozen. Yes. Okay. You want to go ahead? Uh, yeah, it was a little. Di- he was Tim was dying, and um, he was very happy with his. He always just called the the book. Uh, which is a graphic novel, his comic book. And we printed it on really nice paper, and it's in color. And uh, he, the designer, Tim, wanted it to look like, I mean, computer stuff was going very fast at, at that time, becoming more usable and readable. But there was a certain point in time where things looked like uh, uh, screen grabs off of TV sets, were very uh, blurry and didn't things that look right. But he wanted it to look like that in order to fit the the complex story that he'd written about uh, these characters. And he was using people like uh, Susan Sarandon and other friends like that as characters in in the piece. And his designer guy, God, what was his name? Um, he was always at Tim's house making some art thing for Tim uh, and he, he did the whole comic book thing and he was very very positive. Anyway, so the book had come out and we were doing all these things and he was slowly dying and we were talking about uh, chirogenics and how he, he wanted to be coming back, you know, and whatever and you know, he had all this, they had all this equipment outside of his, his bedroom sliding glass. It was kind of like a 
a ranch style house and very California like, almost like an Eichler. And uh, he had a sliding door next to his bedroom that would lead out on his patio. And he was really happy with that. He would like to go out and have his coffee and his acid in the morning and sit there under a tree and look. And he really loved the birds. He liked to think he could talk to the birds. And uh, he would uh, wander back in. But he, you had to almost stumble over this equipment they were going to use to remove his head at, at death. And uh, I, I don't remember what the, the message was. Somebody left me a message. They probably never gave it to me. But uh, my, I had a great staff. Uh, and so, but the thing was with Tim was that uh, one day he called me up and had said, uh, I'm, I'm not going to have that my head removed anymore. And I said, oh, yeah. What's the matter? He says, well, he says, I was watching these guys out here today. They came around to inspect the equipment and all this. And they're all in white coats. and They got clipboards. He says, I, says, I don't want to wake up in 50 years. So the bunch of guys with clipboards and white coats talking to me, my little head, you know, says, forget it. So. You know, I had I had heard that he had changed his mind at the last minute, and again, you provided some fascinating insight there. I didn't know what it was that caused him to change his mind. I think it was just he just finally realized who his who his audience is going to be if he ever did wake up. You know. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't his people, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I had a, towards the end of his life, I had a wonderful time with him because I came down and spent a week to help out. He, when he first got ill, severely ill, he had tons of people over there all the time. His garage was full of a whole bunch of folks on, on computers anyway. He, and his son was there, and as one of his sons, and they were there. All, so there was always like a little group of comrade going on. And then there was the visitors in the house, and then there were the evening parties. And, you know, he was always in the middle of a big, uh, a big drink up, almost of uh, friends and family and strangers and everybody coming over. So at some point, though, everybody got worn out from taking care of him. And I came down because there really there was virtually nobody there. I mean, when Nona would come over and cook lunch. And there'd be myself and maybe one or two other people would drop by during the day or, but you know, it was pretty limp, but the guy was such a party animal. I mean, every night I load him in his wheelchair, take him out the driveway, put him in my tiny rental car put the wheelchair in the trunk. And we drive down to sunset Boulevard. He wanted to go partying. He wanted to go clubbing. <laughs> <laughs> So we did, but the, and that was so amazing to me that we'd stop into every place and not only would everybody know him, but he'd know every doorman, every parking lot attendant, every waitress by first name and remember them. And, you know, to me, that was like very, most important about a person's character is you do not rise above the mass you're in, you know, be part of the mass. And Tim was definitely a, a person of the people in that regard, and also a, a respectful person of the people. So. The way that Tim approached his death is something that, that 
was very inspirational to me because I've never, I've never actually told anybody this before. I was uh, struggling with prostate cancer at the same time he was going through his last year. Uh, and I was following him on the internet. You know, he was on the net all the time. He was talking about dying on the net. And uh, I thought I was going to die myself. I, I had, uh, you know, I had eventually I had surgery and, and I cured now. Uh, but it was a very difficult time for me because I thought I was, I really thought I was dying. And then I saw how he was approaching it. And I thought, well, I'm not going to be a little wimpy asshole coward and die like that. I'm going to die like Timothy Leary did. And so he really did a, a lot to help me get through that period. I, and, you know, I never met the man, but but he was an inspiration to me in that regard. I think we all need to uh, give a little thought to what, what how we're going to die. Uh, I even gave a talk about it a year or so ago, uh, psychedelic hospice. But uh, uh, I think that, that he is... is so much more he was so much more and, and his work still remains that way and his spirit is still with us that i think that that it's important that we we not just kind of say oh yeah he was a good uh you know he he did acid a lot but he also was a brilliant scholar and, and an important man in his field and and uh like you just said even more important than all that ron he was a man of the people he he never forgot where he came from and i think that's awesome to hear that Also, he, he's a guy that, you know, he, he kind of, he had one hand in the uh, 19th century and one hand in the 20th century. And his, uh, you know, when he, he grew up at West Point, right? Right. His dad was uh, the, uh, was a doctor there. And he, kind of think for a few minutes about what it would be like, you know, everybody's playing soldiers and whatnot. When he joined the military before World War II. And he was uh, he was in what became known as the Air Cavalry, except back then it was the real cavalry. They were actually riding horses to go into battle. You know, so I mean that's how far Tim had gone through, and he had every opportunity to be a complete snob. And maybe he was earlier. I don't know what he was like when he was like, I can't imagine what he was like in in college or when he got his PhD. But he, you know, when being in these professions, when you're, you know, you can be a real, it's a real hellhole for jerks in the profession. (laughs) It is. I'll tell you what, we're, we're, uh, little past the end of our time. I know some people are here because they're listening in from work right now, and I, I don't want them to get in trouble. But, Ron, I would love to uh, have, have another conversation with you. Maybe you can even bring George DiCaprio in. DiCaprio Look, in and I, I'd love to if I could. Well, why don't you, with or without him, I'd, I'd love to get you back. We do this every Thursday morning at 1030 and every Monday night at 630. And uh, any time that you can join us, uh, just let Charles know, and, and uh, we'd love to have you. I, I want to hear more of these old stories to tell you through. You're, and on top of that, this is a, you're the first person in the salon that's finally older than me. I, I'm 78, and I finally am not the oldest guy here, so I'd like to have you back for that reason, too. High school class of 60? Uh, high school class of 60, you're right. Okay. All right. Hey, so Lorenzo. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, and then I have an interjection. I was going to say, you were, you were 58 then, right? High school? 
yes. Yeah, yeah. Where'd you go to Where'd you go to high school, Ron? Theodore Roosevelt High School in Fresno. Ah, okay. And California I'm not, boy. I'm not gonna let him change the name either. <laughs> go ahead, Charles. So I know we're wrapping up. So I've got a question really for uh, for all four of you, Michael, Rio, Ron, and Lorenzo. Um, and, and Ian and I were talking about this after the salon last week. You look back at Tim, and there's a lot of folks that, um, you know, look at his contribution and go, that guy messed it up for everyone. You know, there's that book, uh, The Most Dangerous Man in America, about, you know, the lengths he went through to get out of prison. <laughs> and then there's, you know, the the Tim of the 90s, the, you know, St. Tim. Um, you know, and so there's all of these kind of caricatures of him, but why going into the mainstream of the 21st century, should we remember him? What should we take from his example that makes him more than just a historical curiosity? I'm interested in what each of you has to say about that. I'm, I'm just going to very quickly add in that for, for me come, you know, I was uh, at Santa Cruz in the nineties and he was a bit of a legend in the counterculture. And then he came to, uh, he came to UC Santa Cruz and did a show, and it was, I mean, it was incoherent. People shouted him off stage, shouting, the emperor wears no clothes. And it was very much, there There was a feeling of, like, the reason we have this fucking drug war right now is because people like this guy blew it all up and weren't responsible with, with, with the sacrament, with the, you know, with molecules. And um, it, in a lot of ways, it sort of reminds me of, uh, when marijuana was first decriminalized in Colorado and all these bakers got together and were making 200 milligram candy bars that looked like they were good for kids. They looked like, you know, a Mars bar or something like that. And you're like, no, you guys, you're going to blow it this way. We can't like, and, and so that, that, um, so, so he was like a very mixed bag. Like I was aware of his history. And so to just add on to what Charles, Charles just said, what do you think his contribution is? Not, not only what can we take from him, but how can we kind of get the good parts of his legacy going forward? Well, you could take the refined sugar out of the candy bars. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, do you want to add something? Oh, yeah. I would say the most important thing... Uh, most is this book uh, Darwin's Pharmacy by uh, it documents quite thoroughly an English professor in Pennsylvania his name escaped me for a second but it's called Darwin's Pharmacy and it's a really thorough documentation of all the media lies about Timothy that they're just like we're experiencing today you know these things are all mockingbird operations, you know, to destroy the counterculture and specifically Timothy. But the most recent thing I've realized about Tim that I would say is the reason they were fired from Harvard, what, 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 what led to that of Ram Dass becoming a hippie, you know, a Ram Dass become a Richard Alpert becoming an Indian guru and, um, is they woke up the children. The reason was is that children of the rich people, the 1% were being woke up to the history of the United States with the Indians and the, and, and the blacks. And that's something that's happening right today. That's a, what's happening today is a direct relationship 
to the establishment losing losing their grip. And the, Lorenzo would know this. They don't have good title to the land. Harvard does not have legitimate title to the land it's on, just like in Hawaii. Doesn't you know? Just like the U.S. properties in Hawaii is bad title. I mean, President Clinton admitted that we we illegally overthrew the Queen of Hawaii. So that's actually what happened at Harvard. Why they were in the why we even know about Tim was because of this. That's the reason. It was in the New York Times, you know, this because of this was very unusual professors being fired. And that happened in 1963. So it's all documented in the Harvard Crimson uh, School archives. You know, the actual day to day shenanigans going on. Well, the so real, you wanted to add your two cents in uh, how yeah, Tim should be remembered in this century? That um, Andy Weil, of course, published the story in the Harvard Crimson about giving LSD to undergraduates, which started to lead finally to them leaving. Uh, but the thing I want to say in response to Charles' uh, point, question, was that... Uh, I recall Albert Hoffman always kind of differed with Timothy because Albert thought that LSD should be reserved for the elite, uh, that it was the type of substance that needed to be used in a certain way. And while I won't disagree with that, I do think that Timothy uh, served historically a very important role and I'd say none of us would be here in the psychedelic salon and many other things wouldn't exist if Timothy hadn't uh, introduced large numbers of people to LSD and other psychedelics and perhaps more importantly worked out methods and techniques of how to approach them in a, uh, in a responsible and uh, good way to give you preparation, uh, and to open up consciousness. You know, Albert may have um, brought the substance to us, but uh, Timothy, you know, got it out to enough people that we have do have a change in the world. And we now, of course, are having the backlash perhaps big, bigger than ever. But still, it's uh, it's become a real situation of you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. And I don't think we would have had a bus without Timothy. I think that's ex excellent. Uh, well, well put. Excellent uh, insight there, Rio. And I, I agree. Timothy jerked these uh, the acid out of the laboratory away from the researchers and got the people involved, too. Uh, I think we'll pick this up again Monday night, but I, I, I'll uh, answer your question, Charles, with a, a Timothy Leary quote that I actually had uh, transferred, uh, made into a rubber stamp that I gave to my youngest grandchild. And I think this advice is, is the best that he ever gave, and that's think for yourself and question authority. That's, that's what he gave to me, and I, I appreciate it greatly. So listen, everybody, thanks for being here, and until next time, Keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs>
And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.